right. Well, we are in the midst of a four-week sermon series focused on Advent. So last week, we gave a little bit of a primer about what Advent is, given the fact that we comprise varied church backgrounds. And so Advent is something that's likely been maybe hit or miss for some of us. Maybe grew up in traditions where it was a big deal, or maybe other traditions where they never touched it at all. And so just a few words of review for us this morning. The word Advent has in mind the coming of Jesus. And so then when we think about coming of Jesus, we can also think that this has in mind like preparing for his coming or waiting upon his coming. And so specifically, this is a season that beckons us to wait on Jesus. And in an immediate sense, we're waiting on the celebration of Jesus' birth, what, what we annually think of as Christmas, and then all that that entails within our given context. But ultimately, we are waiting on Jesus' return to earth when he will fully and finally vanquish his enemies, sin and Satan and death. And so, starting last week, we're looking at four different themes over four weeks. And last week, we looked at the theme of promise. So, if we are called to wait, to wait for something good, to wait expectantly, to wait in hope, to prepare for Jesus, there must be something that, we, that is worth waiting for. And, and so, we tried to establish this thing that's worth waiting for through the theme of promise. And if you go and open up your Bible, read through the Bible, the Bible is filled with tons of promises. And we look specifically at a promise given by God, or actually promises given by God in Jeremiah 29, 11. Let me just briefly read this for us. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. And we talked about how this one verse is one of the most misunderstood and misused verses because we can tend to read this verse at face value. And it's really easy for us as we read this at face value to conclude that, oh, well, God has plans for me. And those plans are for my good. Those plans are for my future. Those plans are for a hope, a hopeful future for me. So if God has plans for me, well, it's easy to think, well, I'm significant, right? I'm special. Uh, God desires my welfare. And we talked about how other translations for the word welfare talk about prospering, okay? And and so then what we can do with this, if God wants our welfare and prospering, anything undesirable in my life, we can think maybe unconsciously can't be from God or can't be used by God. So God wants to give me a prosperous future. He wants me to be filled with hope. And this is all true, but our problem is that we tend to think about these things in physical, circumstantial expressions. So then, when we think about this in physical ways, we tend to then kind of define it ourselves. What does it look like for God to have good plans for me? And we begin to impose maybe our filter upon what good plans are for us. 
But what we've got to understand is that God is focused on the reality that informs, comes underneath our physical circumstances. God is primarily, not that he's not concerned with our physical circumstances, but he's primarily concerned with our spiritual reality. And that is what is intended to inform how we view and engage with our physical circumstances. And so we talk then about how Jeremiah 29, 11 is true for us today. As it was true for those people it was first spoken to. But what we had to understand is that those people were in 70 years of exile. 70 years of oppression. 70 years of hardship and suffering. And yet God spoke this to his people. But Jeremiah 29, 11 is true for us in the same way all of God's promises are true for us. They find their fulfillment in and through Jesus. The plans that God has for us is for our lives to be oriented around Jesus. Our welfare, our prospering is directly connected to our life in Jesus. Our future hope is only sure in and through Jesus. And so Jesus is the promise that provides us sturdiness in the struggles and suffering of this life. Jesus holds us in those moments. It is our faith in him that keeps us firm, that keeps us hopeful, enduring in the midst of circumstances that could otherwise break us. And so Jesus then is the promise we cling to and that we wait for expectantly. So last week, our Advent theme was promise. Today, we're going to be focused on the theme of waiting. And like last week, we're going to root ourselves in an Old Testament book, this book being Micah. And as we did last week, we're going to read one verse, we're going to provide a little bit of context about what's going on around this verse, and then we're just going to let it preach to us. So let me read this verse for us, and then we'll jump into it. Micah 7, 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time together. It's so easy in the midst of busyness, in the midst of maybe so much to do on our to-do list, to just kind of go through the motions. And this is true maybe every Sunday as we gather corporately. But I ask that you would please press heavy upon our hearts this morning. Help us to feel the working experience the working of your Holy Spirit in us. Would you have your way in these moments? Not that we would walk out of here the same people, but that you would, even in these moments together now, that your Holy Spirit would grab hold of us, captivate us, convict us, encourage us in ways that each of us need it personally and in ways that we need it as a corporate church as well. So God, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, transform us in ways that we cannot manufacture in and of ourselves. 
It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so when we look at this verse, we can see clearly the statement by Micah that he is committed to waiting on God. That's very clear here, right? So that's where we're going to end this morning. But there's a number of observations we can make that can help us understand maybe what waiting looks like. So first of all, this verse begins with a but. But as for me. Okay, so Micah is clearly drawing a strong contrast here to something that's going on that he's been talking about. Right? So he's been talking about something. We don't know what. I'm guessing most of you don't have Micah 7 memorized. Right? So we don't know exactly what he's been talking about, but he is stronging a very distinct contrast to what he has been talking about. And this should be helpful for us. Right? We can go and look around what he's been describing, and this can help us understand then what he, or the picture that he's trying to paint. So, so let's just talk a little bit about what's going on around this. But first of all, Micah was a prophet in Judah, okay? So Judah, if you don't know this, uh, maybe you remember this. So the nation of Israel at, at one point in time was Israel, okay? But then because of sin within the nation, it actually split into two different nations, Okay, so the northern part was Israel, and the southern part was known as Judah. So Michael was a prophet in Judah. This is also where Jerusalem was as well. But despite being a prophet to Judah, his messages reached beyond there. His messages were also for Israel as well. And his messages help answer why he sought to, help, to contrast himself from God's people, okay? So he's a, he's a prophet to Israel. So he's a prophet to God's people. And, and we talked last week what a prophet is. It's basically a mouthpiece for God. So God speaks to this individual, and then he speaks through this individual as well to his people. And they oftentimes are speaking to cultural realities, contextual realities that are ongoing in the nation at that time. And what becomes really clear through Micah's messages to Israel was their rampant sin against God. Okay? They were sinning rampantly against God. Now Micah looks out amongst Israel and he concludes this. He says, there is no one upright among mankind. No one who does right or who does good. He doesn't see anyone who is good. He doesn't see any semblance of godliness, which is really interesting, right? Because these are God's people. And he doesn't, he doesn't see anything like that. All he is able to see is a commitment to sin and to evil. Now, this is something we can read in Micah 7, in the book of Micah, but this is something we also read in the New Testament as well. Paul, in the book of Romans, in Romans 3, speaks directly about God's people, about Jewish people, as well as non-Jewish people as well. This is what he says. He says, no one does good, not even one. So what Paul observed in the first century is the same thing Micah observed hundreds of years prior to that as well. 
It's almost as though there's this general issue for humanity. And there is. This is true. We tend to live for self, not for God. This is what was happening in Micah's day. We seek power. We seek control. Even if it's maybe in the context of our own households. Controlling the remote, maybe, right? Or controlling our schedule in certain ways. We still seek power and control in certain ways. Rather than seeking to submit to God, we sin, or more appropriately, we are sinners. That's who we are. We need to be saved from ourselves. We are not good people. And Michael, what he's going to do in Micah 7 is he's going to provide some specific examples of what this not good person looks like. So he says in verse 2 of Micah 7, he says, they all lie in wait for blood. And and then he's going to go on and comment how the people in his context are basically hunting one another. Now, we may read this and think he's merely thinking of murder. Right? When we hear, lie in wait for blood, that I think we probably immediately go to the idea of murder. But that would be to miss the point of what's really going on, what Micah is speaking about. We can be sure that was occurring in that day in his context. Murder was happening. But Micah goes on and he describes this in further detail. And this is what he says. He says, the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. So this is talking about things, or, or maybe like death by a thousand betrayals. Right? Disrespect. Disdain. Contempt. Hatred within the context of relationships. And so for us today, this surfaces in our relationships as well, right? Like a cutting comment shared between spouses. Or maybe rolled eyes or huffing in the face of a parent seeking to love their child. Or, or maybe a parent lashing out at their children in anger. In many different ways, people are selfishly seeking their own good, their own pleasure. And and what this does is when we try and seek our own good, it's it's an attempt to increase ourselves. And when that happens, ultimately there's a decrease of others as well, right? So we try and be in a position of superiority so that we can then look down on or at least be in control of those not at that same level. And Micah then said that the social structures are so broken in Israel that people should put no trust in a neighbor. They should have no confidence in a friend. I mean, maybe we've felt this. We felt the brokenness of relationships. But this is, a re- this is a sad reality, for sure. And this is a far cry from the idyllic picture of Eden. Before sin came in 
when Adam and Eve, that Adam and Eve, before sin came, were totally exposed and there was no fear with one another. They were vulnerable with each other and there was no hesitation there at all. So Micah, as he's writing this, he's observing that the people in Israel had given themselves over to sin. And this was having massive implications for their interpersonal relationships. Verse 3 in Micah 7 maybe says it the best. It says, their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. So, there's a tendency within our culture to want to do things well, right? I think we oftentimes want to do things well. It's just natural for us. Maybe, maybe it's because we want to get a pat on the back. Maybe it's because we want to get a raise. You, you know, it could be a lot of different reasons why we want to do things well. But this is saying that maybe the attempt to do things well is covering over evil. In that culture, there was a commitment to evil, a commitment even to sin well. That this idea of sinning was secondary. If we're doing it well, maybe it'll cover over the fact that it's actually sinning in and of itself. There are so-called upright, good people that are seeking to do what appears to be good and right, but it's not. But they're at least trying to do it well. But Micah is saying that the thing being called good and right is itself evil. This happens in our day as well, right? And it could look a ton of different ways. It could look like a politician who shows up for a photo op, right? doesn't care about the situation, didn't get their hands dirty, didn't sacrifice in any way, right? They just showed up for a photo op, simply to look good to their constituents. Or maybe it's like false advertising, promising one thing, but then delivering another thing. This week, I saw an article about a college athlete who is known for tweeting Bible verses, tweeting support for children. And this same athlete then was, the reason he was in the news was because he was being arrested for child pornography. And so, like, there's just this massive disconnect, right? Almost like we're trying to baptize sin and evil when we want to indulge in it. And what we see in this is there's this form of hypocrisy here. So whatever it is that we might try and do well, if it's sin, sin is sin. Doing anything well doesn't mitigate evil in any way. So ultimately, here's what's going on in Micah's day. The people that Micah is speaking to are just like us. They struggle with selfishness. That's what's going on at the core level. They are struggling with selfishness. They have gorged themselves on their selves. Maybe they thought this. Maybe they thought, man, God is silent. 
He hasn't been here. I haven't seen him. No evidence of him. So I am just going to make myself happy. And then when he shows up again, then I'll kind of pull it together. Then I'll start following the law, is what they would have said. Maybe for us it's, I'll get serious about church or trusting Jesus or whatever it might be. But we can tend to think like, ah, God is silent. God doesn't care. He's checked out, so we, we then check out. Think about this, maybe when, when you're sick. And maybe you don't, you don't deal with sickness with the, in this way. But when we're sick, I think there's a tendency, for some of us at least, to try and entertain ourselves, to distract ourselves until we feel better, right? Like, as though God has nothing to do with the sickness itself. Or, or maybe in an everyday way, right? Like when we wake up in the morning or we go to bed at night, maybe we've gotten into this routine where we just read the news or we watch Netflix far more than just opening up the Bible and seeing what God has to say to us. We need to look at the people in Micah's day, not in judgment, like we don't look at them and judge them, but as a lesson for us, as a warning to us. Because in the same way as it was true for them, there is danger creeping around us as well, every single day. And so Micah looks at the situation he finds himself living in, and he states his clear intent. He says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. He's looking out and he's seen people looking everywhere but to God. And he's saying, I want to be different than that. And the great advantage we have over Micah is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We can open up the pages of the Bible and we can see how Jesus has looked upon us and how he provides us everything that we need so that we can look to him. We can look and see how Jesus waited patiently with sinners and how that then can compel us to wait patiently on him. Sickness and fatigue and discouragement and suffering are all reminders of our ongoing need to look to Jesus. It's not just something we entertain ourselves through. These are things that can remind us we are weak. We are not enough. We are not sufficient. We need help. And then what we're given from Micah is the importance of waiting well. What are we waiting for in our everyday? It's probably not something that we think about often as we go through our days. I'll be honest. I'm guilty of waiting really poorly a lot of times. As I've dealt with some health issues over the last few weeks, found myself waiting in waiting rooms over and over and over, I've been confronted with this, and I've found myself waiting extensively. And the reality is, I don't wait well 
a lot of times. I just keep thinking about how I want to get over whatever is troubling me so I can get stuff done. I want to be productive. I want to make progress. And my guess is, like, you guys can probably resonate with this as well. Trouble is an inconvenience. But even as I describe myself, I want you to hear how I am putting the emphasis on what I want to do or what I need to do. All of the things that I need to accomplish, this is my reflex as I'm being forced to wait, to slow down, to stop. And here's the thing, why we probably don't like waiting Waiting highlights our inadequacies. It highlights our inadequacies. And I think that's why we dislike it so much. The loss of control. I don't know when I get, to get in to see that doctor. It could be two minutes and it could be an hour. I don't get to control what's happening in those rooms before I get in there. When we're waiting, the loss of control becomes evident. We can see it and feel it more clearly. But the reality is, that's a reminder for us, we never really have control in the way we think we do have control. That loss of control is always there in some measure. And so often I find that my waiting, and probably our waiting, is a waiting on ourselves. How can I get what I want, even in my waiting? And so what we find is there's this self-indulgence like Israel in Micah's day. Nothing's really changed. It's true for us as well today. And then Micah goes on and he makes clear how he is distinguished from those around him. He says, I will wait for the God of my salvation. Okay, now we might like look at this and be like, oh, Micah, you're a prophet and like you're just so churchy and religious and like that's why you answer that way. But this is a call for all of us that we would wait in a way that's similar to Micah is waiting For sure he didn't do this perfectly. No way. He's a sinner like us, okay? But it's a call for us that we would also wait primarily, day in, day out, that our waiting would primarily be on the God who saves. That that's where our focus would be. Not just getting where we want, when we want, but waiting for God to move waiting for him to act, waiting for him to save, waiting for him to change hearts. And we need to be really specific about this. It's not just this distant, oh yeah, I'm trusting God to do this thing. No, but that that would be how we're oriented day in and day out. When we wake up, we would remind ourselves of this reality. Today is a day I'm called to wait on God to wait on him to do something that I can't do in and of myself. 
In Luke 10, we read about two sisters. I wanna, uh, these two sisters are waiting on Jesus, okay? I want you to note how they're waiting on Jesus in different ways. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving of Jesus, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So Martha is working really hard to take care of Jesus' needs, to wait on him. Mary, the other sister, comes and rests at Jesus' feet. She also waits on Jesus but in a different way. And Martha is becoming frustrated with Mary because she's not helping care for Jesus. Martha is essentially saying Mary is a bad waitress because that's the role that Martha is filling. But Jesus commends Mary for her choice to sit at Jesus' feet, to wait on him. He recognizes her for choosing the good portion instead of busyness. So choosing the good portion as we wait for Jesus is not necessarily an accumulation of knowledge. It's not the enjoyment of comforts. Choosing the good portion is not necessarily productivity. It's nearness to the one that we're waiting for. That's the good portion nearness to Jesus, nearness to his church. It's believing in Jesus and his promises and letting this dictate the whole of our lives, always resting in Jesus. And so as we wait on Jesus in preparation for celebrating Christmas this year, but more so waiting on his return, let's be diligent in setting our hope on him, on his grace, Not not the gifts that are going to end up in the dumpster, but on Jesus and the greatest gift that he gives, grace. Got one point of gospel application for us this morning, but, but first of all, this call for us to focus on what Jesus has done. We want to do things well. We want to be productive but we continually have to push ourselves into the co-pilot seat, into the back seat, and remind ourselves who's in charge. It's most important what Jesus has done for us. And as we wait, we need to remind ourselves of this often. It only matters what Jesus has done for us, not what we need to do for Jesus. So one point of gospel application is this. Jesus hears us. And this comes from the end of Micah 7-7. He says, my God will hear me. I read this, I just hear a firm proclamation. And this is my hope for us. 
that we would find ourselves here because we're a people who deal with plenty of doubts. Does God hear? Does he care? What's he doing? That we would be able to root ourselves in the gospel, believe it fully, and make this statement with Micah, my God will hear me. Even if circumstances don't go the way I would prefer, my God will hear me. Even if the timing isn't what I would prefer, my God will hear me. See, Jesus doesn't force us to wait as a way to torture us, but to train us. To train us to believe we are insufficient and to believe that his grace is sufficient. To train us in his goodness. To train us that he does hear us. So this beckons us to come to him repeatedly, to cry out to him. More than we cry out to doctors for answers or medicine, may we cry out to Jesus for healing. More than crying out to Netflix to amuse us, may we cry out to Jesus to fill us with joy. Waiting on Jesus means we wait on him. We go to him. We sing his praises. We bring our requests. He will hear us. He cares. He actually wants us to want him. This is why he's come to us, why he's died for us. So may we cry out for Jesus because he is someone who hears us.